I took hold of his right wrist and moved his hand behind his back. You're under arrest, I said as I reached for his left wrist. Evidently, there had been a communication error. You see, he didn't want to be arrested. He pulled away from me violently and started to run. I reached up with my left hand and grabbed his shirt. He spun around on me and took a swing. It caught me on the shoulder, but I didn't really feel it. Now what? My brain was shouting. Let's see. Step back with the right foot, bring the left arm up and make connection with the subject's forearm. With my right hand, grab the subject by the right wrist, slide the forearm to the subject's upper arm, step away from the subject, drawing the arm out and creating an arm bar. Bullshit. My brain was trying to remember the exact steps to do an armbar takedown, the maneuver that had been taught to me in the police academy, but hadn't been trained or reinforced since then. What does your brain and body do when faced with a dangerous situation and adrenaline gets involved? You do what you spent most of the time doing and training, and when the department has failed to give you the foundation needed to succeed, you rely on anything that will work. I don't think he expected the headbutt. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. A couple of weeks ago, I caught a trailer for an upcoming documentary called Wrist Lock, the martial arts influence on police use of force. The trailer immediately caught my attention. Some of the big names in law enforcement training and martial arts were discussing the importance of physical control tactics training, physical fitness, and mental fitness in law enforcement. I reached out to the filmmaker, Jason Harney, and asked if he'd be willing to talk to me about his upcoming documentary, and he was generous enough to share some of his time with me. Jason is a retired sergeant from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and a documentary filmmaker. His first feature-length documentary was released in September 2017 and is titled The Basketball Family. It follows retired NBA player and former Purdue University standout Doug Lee and his transition from professional basketball to coaching. Jason has gone on to make several more documentaries, The Wounded Blue, Repeat Offender, Voices of Blue, a six-part docuseries, The Making of a Cheer Team, and, coming in September, Wrist Lock. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Yes, glad to be here uh, with you, uh, Steve. I mean, it, it's a great opportunity and, and uh, love uh, spreading this message uh, that we're trying to put out with this latest film and, and speaking directly to our police audience. Yeah, I'm really excited about what's coming up. But before we get too far into that, I want to find out a little bit more about you and specifically, how did you get into policing? Well, you know, I, I, I'm sure not unlike many, uh, I have a family full of law enforcement. And uh, my father, he's a uh, retired Nevada Highway Patrol lieutenant, was uh, on the force there for 32 years. Though I didn't join that agency, I ended up joining our uh, local police department in here in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Yeah, he certainly influenced me and sent me along that road of being a part of the law enforcement family. So from Las Vegas Metro to documentary filmmaker, how does that happen? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, everybody has their story, right? And, you know, for me, um, I guess you could say I was one of those people, if you knew me, you know, throughout my career that, that really loved movies. And, and certainly it was always going to be my dream to uh, someday make them. Now, I started, uh, you know, at the, the very minimum age, uh, becoming a police officer. So I knew that uh, retirement for me 25 years later was still going to leave me a fairly young man and, and I need a second career. So I started to prepare for that uh, early on. And we had a video production unit at Metro that happened to work in the same building I did during one of my assignments working as a training and counseling officer for our police academy. 
And uh, what I ended up starting to do is spend a lot of my off time and weekends just being a, uh, a second hand for them, learning everything that I could. And that was taking place in the late 90s. And uh, by the early 2000s, I began to do uh, video production work part time, always with the idea that when I retired in 2015, that I would then go into uh, full time filmmaking. You know, that's really smart, preparing for retirement early on. It's often what I tell uh, officers is they need to start planning for the future a little bit. And that probably explains why you seem to do a lot of work with foundations such as Wounded Blue. Well, sure. And, and you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Randy Sutton, whose career uh, paralleled with mine, give or take a couple years, uh, is the uh, person who started the Wounded Blue uh, organization to uh, help injured and disabled police officers nationally. And uh, back around 20, I'd say 17, maybe 2018, he had known I had just completed my first uh, documentary film. Uh, it was a film called The Basketball Family, following a local high school team and their former retired NBA player coach. And once he had found out I had done something like that already, he was interested in uh, producing a documentary film that would tell the six stories that inspired him to create his organization, and that of film, of course, came out in 2019 and is also called The Wounded Blue. How does working with those foundations and those types of series like that, how does that compare to making a feature documentary? Well, that is what we did. Uh, the Wounded Blue is a feature documentary film. So, you know, essentially what I'm doing as the filmmaker is creating and telling a story that is about their organization and, and, and how it came to be, which generally as the story would go is at the time, Randy was doing a radio show. His Facebook was often, you know, the setting for a lot of messages from police officers all around the country talking about how their departments did not treat them very well in the aftermath of critical incidents. Uh, we know that there are uh, significant mental health issues in law enforcement, some of which can lead all the way to suicide. And that was something that Randy wanted to become a part of the solution. And so that is why he created his organization. And at the time it was being created, I was documenting the entire thing. And we traveled around the country telling these stories uh, of cops, you know, as an example, uh, Anne-Marie Carrizales in, in uh, 2013, she was shot in the face uh, and in the chest during a car stop uh, on Graveyard. She happened to stop a group of uh, gang members who had just got done robbing a series of convenience stores. Uh, she didn't know that when she stopped them. It was just a traffic stop to her. But then uh, guns were, were drawn. She was shot. She actually got in her car and chased the vehicle for uh, 10 or 15 minutes until ultimately they were caught later on. You know, unfortunately, as she will tell you, the physical injuries, that's the easy part to heal from. The mental injuries, that's where the challenges are, because now you're talking about dealing with your family at home, how the department perceives you. Uh, and, and coming back from something like that mentally is incredibly difficult for a lot of police officers. And that's where the Wounded Blue came in. And she was one of the prime stories we told in that film. And Voices of Blue is something that I, I kind of binge watched yesterday. And wow, that's pretty powerful stuff there. And you, because it talks specifically about those emotional problems, those mental issues that come from those physical, those physical issues. And the thing that kept hitting me pretty hard through that is why do agencies abandon these survivors? That's a really good question. I think that if you were going to give a very generalized answer, you would say that about 85% of all 18,000 police departments in this country have 50 officers or less. 
Uh, that translates into them just simply not having the infrastructure in place and the procedures and the money to be able to look after police officers in the aftermath of a critical incident. And, and it really does come down to it being that simple. There is no peer support team. There is nobody looking after, after an officer. Sometimes they might be in the hospital and sure the chief or the sheriff and some of the higher ups will come say, uh, say hi because they feel obligated. But then after that, Everybody else goes on with their lives. The members of their squad will go on with their lives doing their jobs. And they kind of forget about the guy who's at home healing from a gunshot wound or healing from the uh, traumas of a traffic accident or even mental traumas. That, that's where some of the problems lie. And we did Voices of the Blue as kind of a, a sequel to the Wounded Blue film because we wanted to show that there are so many other stories out there of officers who are suffering alone. I think this leads in well. It's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up to where we're headed to with your new documentary, Wrist Lock. You know, you started with uh, the basketball family and, you know, I won't hold it against you that you featured a Purdue player, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, a basketball family, though, as you talked about being about that professional player transitioning to coaching, uh, and then you go on to do the film, um, and I, gosh, I'm sorry, I just spaced it about the cheerleading. You know, both sports... And it seems like sports and law enforcement have been passions of yours. And Wristlock kind of brings both those together, looking at the combative sports of, of martial arts and law enforcement and how that all fits together. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, along the way, actually, my uh, uh, film that I did, it came, I did it before The Wounded Blue, but it came out after The Wounded Blue. It was called Repeat Offender. And that was kind of my foray into true crime. It was based on a uh, true crime book written by a detective here in Las Vegas named Brad Nickel. And he worked for the repeat offender program known as Rope uh, and tracked career criminals for 15 years of his career. And the book was about his uh, biggest case, which was uh, about a guy named Damon Monroe, who is known as the uh, most prolific commercial burglar uh, and thief in Las Vegas history. And uh, that was a great experience making that film. And and you're right. uh, Obviously, when you make let me just say that when you make these films, they're incredibly difficult in terms of workload and the time committed. I mean, each one from start to finish is a minimum of a year, sometimes more depending on how long the distribution process is. So you're right on in saying that if, if you see Jason Harney make a movie, then you can pretty much be guaranteed there's some level of passion toward that topic. And, and I absolutely see that the, uh, there's some of the, I haven't seen all of your work yet and I was trying to chase some of them down, but the stuff I have seen, it very much carries over. It has that kind of news approach, but a very straight approach, but underneath that lies that passion. You can tell you very much care about the topics you're filming. Yeah, for sure. And you know, that is really what documentary filmmaking is. It's long form journalism. So, you know, in comparing it to the news, really what I tell people uh, in reference to a lot of these topics, particularly as it relates to these police uh, subjects that we're covering, it's, it's people like me who are trying to tell these stories that the mainstream media would never tell because they're not going to get the clicks. They're not going to have the, you know, the sexy topic that is going to sell ads for their business. And, and that's just the sad truth of it. So whereas... You know, you could see uh, uh, the topic of a, of a police officer who perhaps has used excessive force in a three or four second clip is going to sell millions of ads. But a police officer, even in the same clip, who was hurt and sent to the hospital as a result of that confrontation, gets nothing because the mainstream media doesn't care. But I do. 
I, I so want to come back to that. And we're going to circle back around to that because I, I think that's really important to discuss. But before I get too far down that road, I really want to know about wrist lock. How did that come about? How did you end up making that? Well, you know, just like a lot of these projects, they're, they're kind of long gestating. As I had told you, you know, I, I uh, spent a lot of time during my uh, career as a defensive tactics instructor and, and taught at all of the various different levels from the academy through in service and instructor trainer. Uh, it was a passion of mine, to put it simply. And I always thought it was really important and always encouraged my peers, my supervisors, and everybody in between that the importance of proficiency and tactics should be at the top of their list for the multitude of reasons that we already know. You, you, if you are not well-trained in a certain technique, it's not going to be available with you, uh, for you on the street when you need it at that moment of truth. Now, going back early into my career in the early 90s, a guy that I was assigned with on Graveyard uh, Southwest Patrol was an officer named John Gentile. John is the main subject of wrist lock. Him and I have now known each other for you know going on 30 years. And uh, he was once my martial arts instructor uh, outside of the police department. He is what I call the quintessential master martial artist. He is a guy who not only had a police career, but ensured that through his martial arts career and training outside of the department, he trained with all of the legends in the martial arts world. He's an instructor under Dan Inosanto, who many people know is one of the uh, preeminent Filipino martial arts experts in the world. Uh, who's 80 plus years old today, among many other uh, major names. And so, you know, John ended his police career uh, a couple years after mine. We, I just, you know, brought him to lunch one day and, and said, hey, I have an idea. Let's make a documentary film about how the martial arts has influenced police use of force and defensive tactics in uh, policing. You know, I think immediately when people hear that, particularly non-law enforcement, they're like, oh, oh my gosh, we're bringing in martial arts now. This is over the top. It's unnecessary. But really having that skill and being trained in those gives the officers options and confidence to deal with problems as they come up. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, if, if people would take a look at the, the historical perspective of all of this, the fact is every technique that is taught in law enforcement is derived from the martial arts. And as a result of that, you, you kind of start to make a few comparisons between martial artists and police officers. Martial artists are, are known to have certain attributes, right? They're dedicated to their craft. They have discipline. They're typically physically fit. They practice, you know, that type of uh, thing is important to them so that their skill level is always of the highest aptitude. Whereas police officers typically have none of those traits. And in some cases, you know, as we know, police agencies will train their cops in defensive tactics in a police academy, and then they will never receive that training in any type of recertification training in their career ever again. And even good departments, good departments that I would say would get the gold star in training, such as the one I worked for, you're still talking about a very minimal level of hours of training each year. And then there's the ideas, how many cops have the discipline and the dedication to not only take advantage of that training, but continue to practice because they know it's important. 
And that's really what this film is about. You know, and I remember as a young officer, you know, I, I boxed a little bit when I was younger. I very much enjoyed boxing as a sport and from fitness standpoint. And when I got into the police academy, we spent a week with those physical control tactics and defensive tactics and pressure point controls and, and a week to do that. And then when I get out on my own and I'm out working, when I have to use force of some kind, I punch somebody in the face. And that makes the bosses mad. They're like, you can't do that. And I said, well, give me a tool to use because you can't expect me in a week to learn how to do this stuff. Well, that's just the thing. It, it's a career long uh, process, you know, um, and, and the rewards for that. I, I love one of the quotes in the film. It, it's in the film trailer. You, I, I assume you watched right at the end where John himself states that he is less likely to use force when he, his skill level is at a level where he is confident in the force that he is using, okay? Meaning, of course, that people who have that confidence level in their training, and it doesn't matter what we're talking about, you know, it could be defensive tactics, it could be really any area or subject in the spectrum of police training, you're going to be more confident in your job if you have the training and the practice to back it up. And any police trainer will tell you that. From an educational theory background, we know that the repetition theory of learning excels when you deal with physical skills. And that's the idea that you have to do it over and over and over again to, to become proficient in that. We don't do that. Why do police departments not train these physical skills on a regular basis? Again, that's a really great question. And I, I, the answer, we all know what it is. It comes down to money, time, and, and uh, resources in terms of people. It, it's more important to a first-line supervisor and a police administrator to ensure that there's the number of cops on the street on every shift that there needs to be versus having them you know, inside uh, once a week training on life-saving skills. And until we get to a point where administrators and more so the communities themselves understand that police officers are not the superheroes you think they are. They can't kick everybody's ass. They're not all physically fit. And that tool belt that they have is only as good as the training that they have with those tools, which in most cases is non-existent. Even things like handcuffing are, are tactics that are completely ignored by most agencies after the police academy. And that is a huge problem. It's a tremendous liability. But the question being, why don't they? It, that's what I would say too, why? You, I'd love to hear a, a police leader explain why. And if they're only gonna use the argument about money, budget, funding, and manpower, that's their job to figure out a way around that because this is just too important. I was speaking to an academy class uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago and I, I found myself having to tell these recruits in an academy class that if they rely upon their police department to provide them with all the training they need to be successful in this job, they're going to fail, that they need to go out on their own and get this extra training. Yeah, you know, that is in your imperfect world, isn't it? You, where, where you have police officers that aren't getting what they need at work from, from the place that is supposed to be training them, if for no other reason, for liability purposes, uh, and then they're expected to go out to, say, their own martial arts gym, uh, a, a martial arts gym somewhere in their community and get this training on their own. The only problem with that, and you know this, is the standardization of training and use of force policy. The odds are that a lot of what they're going to learn at a martial arts gym 
probably is not going to be in line with what the use of force policies are and what techniques they are and are not allowed to use. So there lies the problem. That's the imperfect world. In the perfect world, these, poli these police agencies would supply this training to the officers because they know and believe it's important. And I think what a lot of people misunderstand across the United States is that larger agencies aren't doing this either. I mean, obviously the two and three man department is going to really struggle to provide this kind of training to their people. I was with about a hundred man department and we did a pretty decent job with training. Although when it came to the physical control tactics, we definitely didn't do that nearly as often, but you being with Las Vegas Metro, you guys still struggled with getting these done in a regular manner, didn't you? Well, yeah, I mean, we had, a, we had a couple things going for us. There were a lot of innovative leaders in our agency that saw the importance in, in some of the training that we're talking about. It never reached the level that certainly I had hoped. It did at times, but, you know, let's just say somebody like me is in an assignment that has influence over that, but then we move around a lot. Every few years, you go to a different assignment, somebody else replaces you and has a completely different philosophy than a lot of what you did will suddenly come to an end in favor of something else. And that's just the political world of policing, you know, behind the scenes that we live in. We had advanced officer skills training, which was a once a year training that did include some defensive tactics and a lot of really good reality-based, scenario-based training with simunitions that officers were required to go through on their birth month. In addition to that, squads were typically afforded a four hour, four hour training day, which a half a day, four hours of training uh, at the squad level every other week in what was known as your training day. The problem is if any special event was going on during that time, let's say a presidential visit or something needed manpower in another area command, well, then guess what happened to your training day? <laughs> it didn't happen. And you don't have any special events in Las Vegas, so you don't have to worry about that. Right, right. So I mean, that that was an issue. And, and, and again, those training days are only going to be as good as the supervisor that is running them and ensuring that that training actually is occurring at a high level and is quality training. We, we talk about one of the guys in our film, uh, Marcus Martin, talks about that, where, you know, really the idea is let's just go have lunch and brunch uh, as a squad and, and just have someone sign the defensive tactics proficiency test off. Uh, and just say we did it, you know? Unfortunately, even in a large agencies, that's very common. Whereas if you have me as a supervisor or John Gentile as a supervisor, you're gonna get an authentic training course for that four hours and every minute will be used and you'll remember that training. And that's a, the biggest problem I'm running into today as a trainer. You find that too many agencies just want to check a box and they don't really want to provide the necessary training. You you actually, when you put together RISLOC, you've got a lot of, of law enforcement trainers on here, but you also have a lot of martial artists too. You've got a lot some some big names here. Tony Blauer and some of these guys have been around for a long time. Was it hard to wrangle all them and get them into the documentary? Well, you know what? Uh, I had my dream cast and I can tell you that... Uh, Fortunately uh, for this film, nobody told me no. Everybody thought it was a really uh, great and worthwhile project. We're very gracious to uh, give John and I their time. You know, John, as you'll see in the film, uh, unfortunately for him gets to be the stuntman, as he likes to say, uh, with all of these uh, various uh, talented individuals. But for the cast, generally what we were looking for was somebody that was either that was a retired police officer, preferably a police trainer during their tenure, but also a high-level martial artist. 
So if you kind of look at the key art on the top, that's that group. And then the bottom is more or less a group of experts that, you know, like Tony Blauer uh, has spent the last four decades innovating and training police officers in self-defense. The you don't stop with just the martial arts within the self-defense. It looks like you're going to dive into physical fitness and those issues as well in this film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, here here's the, the bottom line in my eyes. If you take your average use of force encounter, there are three factors that are going to be needed in order to have a successful outcome in that scenario. That would be your defensive tactics proficiency, physical fitness, and your mental health. If any one of those three factors were missing in that scenario, you can see where there would be some, some issue. In other words, you could be really good at your defensive tactics, but if you are gonna have a heart attack after you run for 10 seconds, that's a problem. If your mental health is left unchecked, then, and, and you are in an emotionally charged use of force situation, the tendency for you to over or underreact is always going to be there. And I certainly believe that a lot of the incidents that we have that have caused national outrage, especially over these last few years, can be attributed to poor tactics, a lack of physical fitness, and unchecked mental health. And that's really the cornerstone of what the film is looking to uh, put out there to a mainstream audience. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. The Legal Liability Risk Management Institute is the nation's largest provider of liability and risk management services in the United States. Our goal is to help reduce liability, reduce lawsuits, and enhance officer performance. Regardless of the size of your agency, we have a risk management solution. You may contact us at www.llrmi.com or call 317-386-8325. Terrible hours and the stress and bad food, all of that makes maintaining good physical fitness a, a real struggle for officers. Yeah, it really does. And, it, and it's kind of, uh, there, there are two factors involved in that, you know, as you can imagine, and this would be applicable to really anything we're talking about, defensive tactics included. It's kind of a two-way street, right? In one sense, you have a police officer who is not keeping their physical fitness uh, at a level that it needs to be. Now, what level does it need to be? In my mind, so that you can thrive and have the most healthful life possible during your career, and after your career, I mean, really, that should be the goal, right, is to retire and live a long life and not have all of the horrible things that we have to deal with as police officers, especially from a physical standpoint, uh, you know, have you die young. So in the film, Wristlock, we uh, interviewed a cardiologist named Dr. Jonathan Scheinberg. He's out of Austin, Texas, and he uh, specializes in treating first responders as a, as a uh, cardiologist, and he himself is also a reserve lieutenant for the Austin Police Department. So he, he understands the job, obviously, and knows exactly what a cop is dealing with during a long career. And he, in the film, talks about some just harrowing and startling statistics that I really hope will ring true when people watch this, where they'll really start to understand that, you know, it doesn't just happen to other people. It can happen to you too. 
oh, I know my own personal journey in law enforcement. I had gotten terribly out of shape, uh, was, was not feeling well. And, and from an emotional standpoint, not feeling well emotionally, I managed to make a change in that. I got uh, a lot more physically fit. I started watching my diet a lot better, started getting involved in regular, uh, class led physical fitness exercising and, uh, saw some dramatic changes and it just felt so much better. I, and not just from a physical standpoint, but from a mental and emotional standpoint as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really do think that your fitness level and, and your diet are going to be tremendous influences on your police career in ways that you really wouldn't know unless you lived by those principles. But, you know, here's the other side of the coin, too. And, and, and here's a good question. Uh, most, if not all, police agencies, upon hiring you as a police officer, are going to test you with a physical fitness test. And you're going to likely have to pass that test uh, sometime in the last day of the police academy. So the question is, why is it that once you graduate the academy in nearly every police agency, agency in this country, you never have to jump through that hoop again? Right. Once you're on, you're on. And after that, you can have terrible fitness. You can have terrible eating habits. And again, it goes back to, in my opinion, the, the department not supporting the necessary training uh, and foundations to keep their officers and make their officers successful because they don't seem to care. Yeah, you know, Mike Bland, uh, one of the uh, guys in the, in the film, he uh, just actually retired from Las Vegas Metro Police, uh, and he was in one of the top training positions in the department, and he's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. And uh, we, we did a screening of wrist lock for the Undercover uh, Officers Association here in Las Vegas at the beginning of August, and one of the things that had come up with this was this physical fitness issue as it relates to training. And he made a great point, and he talks about it in the film too, and that is that when you are when you are going to training as an officer, and I don't care what it's for, it could be for report writing, for criminal law, defensive tactics, and anything in between, that that training is not for you. It's for the department so that they can record the fact they gave it to you for later. <laughs> and and it, it's a, just a liability shield for the agency. That's what training is today. It's not to make you a better police officer. It's just so they can say they gave it to you. And that's the sad reality of police training today. Uh, what is the most cost-effective way to just get the job done so that your name can appear in a training database somewhere and we can say when you screw up, well, we trained him in this and he used this technique instead. I've talked many times on my shows about police reform and how I'm a, I'm a fan of police reform, but we need to be reforming the right things, training, making sure that the officers are receiving the proper training. And exactly, it sounds like what, and this is why I was so excited when I saw wrist lock and saw that first trailer. And I really wanted to talk with you. It sounds like that's exactly the type of thing that this documentary is going to be covering, being able to give those people information, insight, and maybe even some talking points back to their agency about what they should be doing. No doubt about it. And, and I know that those are buzzwords that we're hearing a lot right now in reference to police reform. Uh, the way we put it in the film is just a slightly different word, and that would be a change of culture. In, in, in my opinion, uh, it, and you take the physical fitness issue as, as an example of this, you, you have over 800,000 police officers in this country, and they're all basically eight personalities, and they're going to be set in their ways, and they all think they're doing their job the right way. And certainly don't want to be questioned on anything, much less their fitness level. So here's what you do. You just say, uh, July 1st of 2023, 
every single police officer that is hired in this country will from that point on have to take a physical fitness test, the same one they passed in the academy every year during their police career with gender age standards applied standards applied to that. What what will you have as a result? Well, give it about 20 years and about 80% or so of all the police officers in this country will now have been taking that test and they'll know no different because it's their culture. It's not a change for them. Whereas you're asking the incumbent cops to do the same thing. I think you know what the answer to that would be. Not to mention the unions would fight it tooth and nail. Absolutely. But I, you know, I don't think it's a big step because when I got into law enforcement, you know, back in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, eating the fast foods and all the terrible diets and everything was pretty common. As I was leaving my career and retiring after 30 years, I noticed a lot of these younger officers, they were bringing in their own foods. They were eating a much healthier meals and they were really trying to stay much healthier than we did in the past. So I don't think it's a huge step from a culture change, but I do think that you have to get some power behind that, whether it be the agencies or maybe even some mandates to make that happen. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I do think that you have a lot of younger cops coming up who have a better mindset when it comes to these issues versus, uh, you know, the, the ones, our peers that we worked around, you know, for, for you in the 80s and me in the 90s and 2000s, it, it would be like pulling teeth to, you know, try to enact some of some of these things we're talking about. But, you know, uh, that's really what I'm hoping a film like Wristlock can do. Uh, not so much for the police officers, but for the mainstream, because I believe if the mainstream begins to understand what police officers really are and where, where the weaknesses are and how they can be addressed, I think they are going to be better armed uh, as a community to speak to the police leaders and say, this is what we expect. Because I, well, here's what I get all the time when it comes to risk lock and the people that have seen it, they're like, this should be viewed by every police academy. And I'll tell them, you know what, I don't disagree with you, but here's the problem. There's not going to be a single police administrator that would put this film on in front of their police academy. The reason why is because any smart police recruit in the room at the end of the film is going to raise their hand and say, are we doing any of this? And of course, the answer is going to be no. Absolutely. And that that's the thing is that I think we have to change the culture from the bottom up. Trying to change it from the top down is not going to happen. Getting this out there and getting the, the, the rank and file to see it on their own will help them start making some of those steps to do the things that I think we need to do to really make a change in our profession. No doubt about it. And, and it's, it's going to take a lot of small steps. I mean, again, when you have 18,000 police agencies and they're all doing the same job, but they're all doing it just a little bit differently and they all believe they're doing it the best and that they're the best. A lot of ego involved in the police training world and the police administration world. Uh, and that that's where, you know, I look at this film as something that the core audience is not cops. I feel like it can benefit police officers. No question about that. If, if they're willing to listen and, and listen to the people on screen who are, are going to give them very good information that they can likely apply to their own careers. But the reality is we need the mainstream to understand police. We have no PR in this profession. We have a mainstream media that has made it their business to vilify police officers in general and, and every negative thing that comes about. That's what you see plastered up on those news channels, not positive stories and the good things they're doing. So until that changes, we have got to do our best to get this type of information out there to the public so that they begin to understand 
what it's really like to be a police officer and what the challenges really are. And that made, lets me circle back around to what you said earlier, that you started making documentary films wanting to tell the stories that the media wouldn't. We recognize that from a documentary film standpoint, uh, the filmmaker's biases can really get into there. What kind of struggles do you have as a documentary filmmaker with that and having maybe a different look than some of your traditional documentary filmmakers? For me... Uh, I think one of the keys is allowing the subjects in the film to tell the story. That's really what I try to strive for. It's, it's not so much my story to tell is as much as it is, it is theirs. Just like your podcast here, a documentary film is giving people a platform to speak about an issue, which in this case, you know, is the martial arts influence on police use of force and police training in general. So when are we going to get to watch this thing? I'm, I'm dying to see it. Okay, well, uh, I actually just earlier this week uh, confirmed our release date. It is going to be September 20th, and it will be on VOD, uh, available for rent and purchase on Amazon, Apple TV, uh, Google Play, and Microsoft Xbox to start. And then about another probably 30 or so platforms worldwide starting October 4th. And those will be announced uh, as soon as I get them. But they'll be on all the cable on-demand services like DirecTV, Dish, and then eventually uh, on all of the ad-based VOD platforms as well down the road. So September 20th is the date. You know, I just did a podcast on on my five, what I consider the five best cop movies. What would you, what would you say is your favorite or best cop movie? I would have to go with Heat. A, a big Heat fan, are you? Okay. I am, yeah. I like Heat for a lot of different reasons, but but primarily because of the epic nature and, and a lot of the accuracy they went into, you know, the 24-hour job, the, the dedication that uh, directly affects your family because you're working when the criminals are, right? You've got Al Pacino's out there meeting with CIs at two in the morning and who's he leaving at home? You know, wife right. and daughter and, and, and speaks about how he's on his third marriage already, you know, that kind of thing. So... I think a lot of the reality of that. And then one of the other things, too, that, that came about in the uh, 1997, I covered it in Voices of the Blue, the shootout in North Hollywood. If you think about it, that showed the public for real just what he was trying to do in a fictional uh, realm. And that is that, you know, police officers need to eat, have the playing field evened out a little bit when it comes to the firepower that they have at their disposal, where, you know, you saw... Uh, four men um, with automatic weapons, M16s and heat, and they're able to take on an entire police force who are just armed with shotguns and handguns. And people don't typically understand that, you know, uh, a shoulder weapon with automatic fire is going to be able to hold down a lot of people that are just firing back with handguns. And I don't think people really understood that until that film came out. And I, I really applauded uh, Michael Mann, the director and the realism that he injected into that. Well, you're not going to get any argument with me about heat. That's, that is a fantastic film. Um, is there any last thing you want to say to the, to the listeners about what you're trying to do, what you've been doing, or maybe something they can take with them from, from this? Well, you know, I, I really do hope that uh, when Wrist Lock comes out on September 20th, that uh, people will take a look at it. And uh, I'm very accessible uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, can easily be contacted and, and would certainly be happy to, you know, have a conversation about the film and, and talk about these issues. 
I feel like they're really, really important. And, and as I stated earlier, uh, it, it's crucial that a police officer take uh, the, his proficiency in defensive tactics, physical fitness, and mental health seriously. Otherwise, I don't really see how we can effectively do our jobs moving forward in this world, this ever-evolving divisive society that we're living in right now. I think it's even more crucial than it ever has been that police officers are at the top of their game. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I, I really appreciate it. And I can tell you that I'm going to be one of the first ones in line to watch that as soon as it becomes available on September 20th. So thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>